Good morning to those of you, or well, whatever time you're watching online. Um, great, great that you're doing so. Welcome. Uh, we are continuing our series. We're in week six of our series on Matthew chapter 10. We're calling it the mission. We're defining the mission in this way that we all have as believers. Um, if I could have the next slide. Our mission is to declare with words and demonstrate with works the good news of God's grace in Christ in our everyday lives. Uh, we could expand on that for the rest of our time together and beyond, uh, but that, that is, in a nutshell, what our mission is. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. And for those of you who are in here, if you don't have a Bible with you and you want to follow along, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And it's on page 975 in those Bibles. And we're using the new international version. And as you're turning, as we do every week, we remind you that understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery. Understanding your part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery. God wants us to know what that is. There's mystery involved. But uh, the basic ideas and our role and our part and what God is up to, he's made it known to us in his word. That's why we study it every week here why we study it in our small groups, why we have our daily life devotional, uh, all around the passage that we're, we're studying uh, together um, on the weekend, and which is a little kind of warning because something's a little bit different. If you look at your sermon application guide and you look at the questions that you'll have for your small group this week, uh, they are looking at next week's passage. And um, the first question ask about this week's sermon, okay? Uh, I won't go into all the details about this. It's just we're a little bit off kilter. It's no big deal. You get to look at the passage in detail that I'm going to be preaching on next week, and then we'll get right back on um, the usual way that that we do it. But just be forewarned if you go, this isn't what he preached on. Uh, It's not, and uh, it couldn't be, so that's the way we're doing it. So um, join me in praying the prayer on the screens as we ask God the Holy Spirit to, to illuminate his word for us. Empty us, Father, of all that prevents us from hearing what you want us to hear. Empty us of our preconceptions, our preoccupations, and our prejudices. Empty us that we might be filled with your spirit and your word, empty us that we might be filled for ministry and mission. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so a little bit of review. Uh, People miss weeks and we get new people in here. So Matthew 10 is a passage where Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples on a short-term mission. He tells them, I'm not going with you. But you're going to do the things that I've been doing. You're going to preach the same message that I've been preaching. You're going to do the things that I've been doing. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to raise the dead. I'm going to give you the authority to do this. Um, You're going to have authority to uh, cleanse lepers, uh, heal people. Okay, so they're going out and they're doing the things, cast out demons. Those are the things that they're going to do on this short-term mission trip. No doubt, it would have produced an extreme amount of anxiety in that group. It would be a very stressful situation to discover 
that you're about to go out and do these kinds of things. Um, and then it goes dark. Uh, at first, it seems like this is just gonna be a really tough assignment. But then as we saw last week, it gets really dark very, very quickly in about verse 16. Uh, and you can see that they probably would have gone from anxiety to possible despair by what he's saying. Because he says, I'm sending you out to be like sheep among wolves. Now you just have to stop and picture that, okay? Sheep among wolves. A time is coming when he says, you will be arrested. You will be beaten to just short of the end of your life. Sometimes you're gonna be tried before tribunals, kings, and governors. And sometimes you're gonna be killed. And some of the very people who will be behind the execution will be your own family members. You're gonna go out doing what you would think is good stuff, the stuff that I've been doing. But you're gonna find that some people are gonna see it as bad. You're gonna be the bad guys in a lot of people's minds. Sometimes those people that see you as the bad guy are gonna be your own family members. Serving Jesus' purposes in the world and sometimes suffering for it go hand in hand. Not just in this passage, but throughout the Bible. That's one of the points of the Bible. It's like a major, major theme. You're gonna serve God, Sometimes you're going to suffer for it, and, and th- that's just the way it is, and it's exactly as Jesus said. It's exactly what has happened throughout the centuries. It's exactly what is happening. Everything that he describes in there is happening in places all around the world and have been happening for a long, long time. So we're going to revisit last week's passage because we really just took a like a 10,000 foot look at that passage and we didn't get into any of the detail last week and so we're gonna we're gonna look at it. it's a three-part sermon started last week next week we finish chapter 10 but beginning in verse 16 follow along as I read I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils to be flogged and to be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what you will say or how you will say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I hope next week I can help you understand verse 23, Uh, but we'll see. We'll see if we have time for that. Um, okay, as I said last week, most of the people who do the, the persecuting that Jesus is talking about here, 
don't see, of, don't look at themselves and think of themselves as bad guys. Right? I mean, most people that you consider to be just horrible people who, let's say, some that are carrying on a war somewhere and doing horrible things, rarely sit around going, you know, like they do in the cartoons. <laughs> let's see what the other devious thing we can do. You know, they think they're doing the right thing. And they see us, for example, as the bad guys. Here's what complicates things. Oftentimes, we are quite objectively the bad guys. We are the bad guys sometimes. It's carefully documented. Uh, if you look at just what's happening today in Christian institutions, churches, that kind of a thing, you get a lot of stories that are coming out, especially recently, about cover-ups by Christian institutions and churches. Cover-ups of sexual abuse, for example. Um, another whole set of stories has to do with leaders who are abusing their authority. Not in sexual ways, but just, they're just bullies. I, got, I know three people pretty well who I could tell you their stories and your jaw would drop at what happened to them in, in Christian institutions that they were a part of. Not just what happened to them, what they observed actually happening behind the scenes, what was actually applauded and said, this is, this, this is standard operating procedure in this organization, and it's, it, it's okay, people. It's Christian, and it's not, not Christian. So um, this, uh, this justifying of bad behavior to accomplish, you know, so that the Christian institution and its mission can be, you know, not held back um, and can maybe thrive. There's just a lot of justifying. Uh, Russell Moore calls it valorizing it, you know, putting, saying, no, this is one of our values, is to be this way, and it's not Christian. It's not what Jesus says. So I was listening to the podcast this week where the host, Kerry Newhoff, was interviewing Russell Moore. Russell Moore was an ethics professor, um, at Southern Seminary in Louisville for years, and then Dean, I think, and uh, he then became the president of the, um, I've got it written down, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission that, that does a lot of work with uh, the United States government for issues of religious liberty. He's now the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. In the interview, Kerry Newhoff talks about the hypocrisy uh, in Christianity. It's always been the case that there's always going to be hypocrites. You know, people say one thing, but do another. And he says, what do you think about that? The damage it's doing to the next generation, the damage it's doing to our witness, people who say one thing, but then do another. And Russell Moore says, that's not the problem. Yeah, I'm going to play a portion of it, but I had more than one person say, he's almost impossible to understand, he uses so many big words. So I'm going to try to give you a quick summary so you can just get into it and not, not be held back. So he says, that's not the problem. The problem is Christians who justify bad behavior, not say one thing and do another. They say something that is the other and do it and say it's okay. And so he says, what happens in this 
is what happens is it starts becoming the values of those organizations. It begins to work its way through those whole, whole organizations. And Christians who think this way, it's damaging to them. And it is a, what he, what he says in there, he says it's Machiavellian or social Darwinist. What that means is it's survival of the fittest. It's like it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, and we've got to be the dogs eating the other dogs. Okay? I'm telling you, this isn't like everywhere. It's not. In fact, it's most places, it's not. You don't find this. But in some of the big institutions right now, it is coming out in droves, this kind of stuff. All right, so we're going to talk about, I just want to stop here for a moment and say sometimes we are the bad guys and we have to own it uh, before we move on to when we're made into the bad guys and we're not the bad guys, we're actually just doing what Jesus said. Okay, that, that's all I'm trying to do here. So um, some people get really upset when Christians point out what the bad behavior of other Christians I'm sorry, that's what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to call that out. And we're not supposed to be looking at the world and going, eh, like this. We're supposed to look at ourselves and say, hey, are we, are we living up to who we say we are? All right? Let's watch the interview. Hypocrisy. I really don't think hypocrisy is the problem. Tell and me I, I, I kind of wish it were. Uh, because if you think about the, the classic cliche, hypocrisy is the uh, tribute that vice pays to virtue, uh, which is to say, well, this is the way that we ought to behave with character and integrity, so let's pretend like we are. Uh, that's not what's happening right now. I mean, it is to some degree, but it always has. It's worse than that. It's a lot worse than that, uh, which is a, a sense of, uh, there's such a lowered expectation mm. that there is uh, in, many in many cases, a valorizing of cruelty and power for the sake of power and even uh, sexual predation and all of these, these other things in a way that, you know, one of the things that was, was most surprising to me in dealing with some of really awful uh, abuses of power is the way that many people would respond with, I mean, grow up. This is, this is the way uh, people are. And so you have, to, you have to play that game. Well, that is a re really, really diminished uh, sense of what, of what humanity ought to be generally, but even more so of what the church ought to be. Hmm. So that's not hypocrisy. What is it? Calling evil good and good evil? Like what, yeah, what is it, I, Russell? I called it, it's kind of, if you think about the prosperity gospel, mm -hmm. which says if you believe um, you'll, you'll flourish uh, financially and, and, and in terms of your health, this is kind of a depravity gospel that, that says, well, yeah, you're awful, but so is everybody else. And that means that awfulness is the way to win. And that is what has sort of set, set in at, at every level. And the problem with it, I was, um, th there's a, a sense in which no one wants to be naive and nobody wants to, to be seen that way. And so you, you find yourself in a mode where you think you're being realistic and what you're really becoming is Machiavellian and, uh, and, and social Darwinist 
in ways that are really, really destructive of, of the church's witness, of institutional life, and maybe more importantly, of your own conscience and your own soul, because you start to adjust. Um, and and that's, that's one of the things that happens is we're always able to talk ourselves into saying, okay, well, here's why I'm living with whatever it is. I mean, you can look at uh, white pastors in the Jim Crow South in the United States, uh, including a lot of them who knew better uh, when it came to the kind of racial injustice that was happening around them. And what were they doing? Uh, most of them were saying, well, in order to have, in order to really help bad things from happening, I have to have a place at the table. And uh, in order to have a place at the table, I have to conserve my influence. And so that means I can't speak to this right now. Which ultimately, I mean, there's never comes a point in which someone says, oh, now is the risk-free time for integrity. <laughs> so uh, Stephen McAlpine has written a book with the subtitle, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. And he um, talks about this phenomenon of where we've gone from being Christians who they're quaint with their ideas or they seem to be really uptight to they're dangerous. So it's kind of a, a shift. Again, not everybody, but just kind of a shift where that's looked at that way. And in his book, he does spend a little bit of time saying, sometimes we are the bad guys. And, uh, and then he'll transition us and we'll spend the rest of the time on that other aspect. So it says, when secular society calls out Christians as bad guys, our first question should be, are they right? We have to acknowledge that the church has a mixed history. And when the church enjoyed power and influence, too often it used it in exactly the opposite way it's found of its founder, to its founder. To serve itself, to make its members comfortable. We have often been too little like Jesus, and for that, we need to stop trying to justify or excuse ourselves and hold our hands up, apologize, and do better. Amen. We have been perpetrators who made life hard for others who we decided were bad guys. Not every critical voice is simply out to get us and some critical voices have much to teach us. There are genuine wrongs that we need to right. This is a transition. At the same time, the fact is that often we are accused of doing wrong not because we are living too little like Jesus because, but because we are living too much like him. And that is a reality. That's the reality that we're going to focus on. Um, how is it uh, that we can stay focused on our mission, stay focused on Jesus, and do the things that Jesus called us to do when sometimes more and more people in our lives are looking at us as the bad guys? So that's the question we're going to lean into. Um, yeah, if I could have the next slide is how can we stay focused on our mission when some people hate us or hurt us? Uh, now, admittedly, and we, we, need, we need to say this, have to say this, very few of us are going to experience anything close to what Jesus described in that passage we just read. Very, very few of us. Anything close to that. Uh, and I don't think it's primarily, I mean, sometimes say, well, 
if we were to really live for Christ in the way that he's called us to live, there would be a lot more persecution of us even here. But I think the major reason we don't experience it is because we live actually in a country that where religious liberty is still, for the most part, uh, codified in law. Uh, and it really is. I mean, Supreme Court, things keep going to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court keeps saying, no, you cannot tread on these people's religious liberties over and over and over again. But we know things change, right? And we know the mood is maybe changing in a lot of ways. So we should be prepared for a little bit more pushback for doing the things that Jesus has called us to do. We need to be prepared for that. Uh, That's one of the questions from the sermon application guide last week. It's what can the church do to help prepare you more for those times when you're going to get a lot of pushback? So how do we stay focused on our mission when people hate us or hurt us? First of all, Jesus says, match wits without making war. Match wits without making war. Verse 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. When Jesus says um, that in a dangerous world that they're entering where people are going to want to kill them and some will succeed, he says, this is how I want you to go in there, shrewd as a snake. Now, it's hard to imagine that anyone listening to Jesus right there as he was speaking, the disciples in that room, Anybody reading Matthew for the very first time, um, and throughout history, or Jesus in his own mind, it's hard to imagine that there isn't a direct connection being made between what Jesus is saying and Genesis 3.1. Yep. All right. So in Genesis 3.1 is where it says, <clears throat> it's foundational to Judaism and, and Christianity, now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. All right, little, little background, a uh, little information that I think is important. So the word there for, uh, the word that Jesus, well, Jesus doesn't use it. This is what complicates things. Jesus spoke Aramaic, all right? So we, we get his, already a translation by the gospel writers of what he actually spoke, except in the few cases where they quote him uh, directly, uh, like Abba is an Aramaic word for, for, for dad. So, um, uh, in the Greek version, there was a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Matthew will oftentimes quote the Greek version, not the Hebrew version. The, Hebrew, the, the Bible was written originally in Hebrew, the Old Testament. In Jesus' time, there was a very popular translation of the Hebrew called the Septuagint. It was a Greek version of that because most people spoke Greek and hardly anybody, even in Palestine, spoke Hebrew anymore. All right, They read it. Uh, but they didn't hardly speak it. So the Greek word that's used there in Genesis is phronimos, meaning crafty, cunning, shrewd. Uh, It's the same word that's used by Matthew to describe what Jesus said, the same exact words. So the snake of Genesis 3, not a good guy, and probably doesn't think of himself as a good guy, is crafty, cunning, and shrewd. And Jesus is saying to the disciples that as they go into a world that's sometimes going to hate them and persecute them, they should be crafty, cunning, and shrewd like a snake. 
like a snake. But he offers an important qualifier, right? And as innocent as doves. Don't be the snake of Genesis 3, but be crafty like a snake is. They have to be. They're on the ground. They could get stepped on. They have to be really crafty to avoid getting stepped on, okay? So be crafty, but be also innocent as doves. So R.T. France, one of the uh, top scholars on Matthew, writes, the disciples' cunning is to be directed not to harming their opponents, but to their own survival and the commendation of the gospel. They need the cunning of snakes without the venom. They need the cunning of snakes without the venom. I think it's a great, great summary of what's going on here. And that's why I put it this way. Match wits without making war. Now, what might that look like? Bringing up any example is fraught with all kinds of problems because people might misunderstand or take it too far or whatever. I'm going to give you an example and then an example from Scripture that's comparable to it. So let's say you're being mistreated at work, not because you're not doing your work well, not because you're really difficult to get along with, but specifically, or, or not because you just have a boss that's just a terrible person that's trying to go after you for, because they don't like you but you're being mistreated at work specifically because of your faith. There's policies and there's procedures and there's things that they want you to do that you just can't agree with from a faith perspective. Let's say that that is your situation. Being shrewd might look like, I'm not saying you would necessarily do this, but might look like I'm gonna go to HR and discuss my situation. If HR is the problem, which HR can be the problem, then it might mean I need to go to a lawyer and have the lawyer kind of work out this situation. At the same time, innocent as doves might mean I'm going to be kind to my opponents. I am going to pray for my opponents. Um, I'm going to be ridiculously honest and humble in the midst of this. I'm not going to try to, you know, just run over them if I get the upper hand. Is there anything like that in the Bible? So the Apostle Paul, I want to take you to a passage where the Apostle Paul is in Jerusalem. He's preaching the gospel. Because he's preaching the gospel, a crowd gathers and they're about to kill him. And somebody intervenes and he speaks to them and actually talks them into, because the Apostle Paul can be cunning as a snake, talks them into letting him address the crowd and settle things. And the guy goes, okay, go ahead. Well, he does speak to the crowds, and by the time he's done, they are angrier than before. All right. So this is what, how the passage goes. The crowd listened to Paul, and he said this. Then they raised their voices when he said this, until he said this, what said right. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken to the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why these people were shouting at him like this, which is an interesting thing. Let's, let's flog him, which is like really a horrible penalty, and then we'll ask him why. Standard operating procedure. 
for Romans. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Cunning as a snake. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. The commander said to him, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Why? You don't do that to Roman citizens. You can interrogate them, but you treat them in a way that does not start with flogging. All right. You might flog a Roman citizen as a penalty after the due process, but you don't start with that. And it, it's just got Paul here very clearly leveraging his Roman citizenship, born in Tarsus, Roman city, leveraging that, and, and then um, doing it in such a, such a fascinating way. Kind of just as a matter of fact, hey, you're about to do something that uh, might be illegal, you might get in trouble. Um, no threats, not I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this all the way, you know, just, just matter of fact. He got flogged many times, so it's like, what's one more? Um, I say, who's never been flogged? Um, but you see this, this craftiness, and yet at the same time, um, an innocence of a snake. You see the craftiness of a serpent without the venom. He's, he's um, how's, he, how's he doing it? He's, 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 not, uh, he's matching wits, but he's not making war. All right, how can we stay focused in our mission when some people hate us or hurt us, match wits without making war? Secondly, take every opportunity to witness. Take every opportunity to witness. We talked about this last week. Jesus says that a day will come when the disciples are going to be dragged to court and have to speak in their defense before religious leaders, kings, and governors. And Jesus speaks of it here as part of the plan for spreading the gospel. Look at verse 17. Especially when you know he's going to tell the disciples later, you are going to be my witnesses all over the world. And this is part of what it's going to look like. Be on your guard. You will be handed over, verse 17, over to the local councils to be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. You're going to actually, because you're being persecuted, you're going to have an opportunity. And you see this all over the book of Acts. It's all over the book of Acts. And we see it also in Paul's letters. So Paul wrote these epistles. They're epistles because they're written to a group of people. Um, but they're letters that are written to a church. And in the church to Philippi, he's writing to Philippi, but he's in prison in another city. And this is what he writes. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel, my imprisonment. As a result, because that's what he's been talking about in the context. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Word's getting out. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, you would think that that, that would make them quieter, but he actually says it's actually given them courage. Now, I want you, oh, 
Let's go. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I... Oh, did it, am I just rereading myself? Yeah. Next one. Sorry. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, some of these people who do it out of envy and rivalry, do it out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. When you read something like this in an epistle, you can be pretty sure that they have seen samples of this and they know what he's talking about. It's kind of hard for us to realize, why would anybody preach to get somebody else in trouble? Um, you can maybe come up with some scenarios, but they know what he's talking about. He says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So he's in prison, and he's like, I'm just glad the word is getting out. I'm here in a very difficult situation for me personally, but I'm rejoicing in the midst of that. He's taking the opportunity to witness. Uh, another one of his letters, he's also in prison when he writes this, and he says, I pray in the spirit at all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me that I will fearlessly make known to the, the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now we're gonna see a parallel to this um, in, in, a, in a moment to some of the things that he's talking about here. I'm gonna take, and he's talking about, I wanna be a witness in the midst of being imprisoned, what Jesus is talking about, and then he reframes for his own mind. This is, this is how I see myself. I'm, a, I'm in chains. I'm not just a prisoner. I'm an ambassador, which we know from other places that he means that's what all Christians are. We're ambassadors of Christ wherever we go. So we represent Christ. We represent the kingdom. Okay, he says, I'm an ambassador who happens to be in chains. And then one other place in Colossians, he says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. He's just leveraging. He's just taking whatever he's in prison when he writes all three of these epistles. They're called the prison epistles for that reason. And he is, he is um, leveraging the situation to get the word out uh, as far as he can. He's constantly doing that. And he's asking for people to pray for him. We are called to do no less. We're called to do no less. If someone hates you and is trying to get you fired or cause other trouble for you, be as shrewd as a serpent and as innocent as a dove by leveraging the situation for witness. They may accept it, they may not, but you're doing your job. You're doing what Jesus has called you to do is to share about him. So how to stay focused on our mission when someone hates you, sometimes people hate you or hurt you, match wits without making war. Secondly, uh, take every opportunity to witness. Third and last for today, rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19, a passage that is oftentimes very misused, but I want you to 
try to explain it. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. All right. Um, I remember as a young person reading that passage and really getting a little confused, thinking, do do I just never prepare to speak for Christ, you know? And and there are people who literally, that's their their perspective, is you're going to preach, you're going to teach the Bible, don't prepare, just let God speak through you. There's a few problems with that perspective. Um, Let me just mention one. So there's a parallel to this passage earlier in Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, among other things in this, but I'm just going to simplify it, one of the things he says is, do not worry about what you will eat. And then it goes on to explain, God feeds, you know, the birds of the air. So why are you, God cares about you more than he cares about the birds. So why? Okay, so if you think Matthew 10 is telling you, don't ever prepare, well then also don't ever cook or shop for food. Just go by each day, waiting for the father to, like a bird, you know, kind of <laughs> feed you. Just sit in the nest and let him feed you. Of course, it doesn't mean that. So what does it mean, the father will speak through you? And what is he trying to say? The emphasis is, don't worry. You can, you can be concerned about putting food on the table and do the work it takes to put food on the table without worrying, all right? And worry is something that we are going to do, but it's an invitation. Relax. God cares about you. That's what it is, an invitation to kind of relax. God cares about you. You don't have to, if, if you're having trouble putting food on the table, relax. God cares about you. All right, same thing. You're in prison. Relax. God cares about you. What does it mean the Father will be speaking through you? It's very similar to something that Jesus says uh, that's recorded in the Gospel of John He says, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Same same idea, Don't, don't be living in fear and worry. The Spirit is going to do what? The Spirit is going to teach you and help you recall what you have heard. Recall what you have heard. The disciples are going to be preaching what they've heard. All right, they're going to be doing what they've seen. That's study. All right, that's preparation. Those are the disciplines of study and learning and growing. Okay, so we have to think of it in those ways. Now, the greatest promise in all of this is that God is with you. God is with you. When you're hurting financially, God is with you. When you're hurting because people hate you because you're a follower of Jesus. So next week, we're going to look at about four or five more ways that we can be focused on our mission when some people hate us as we finish up the passage. But I want to finish with a story that I think illustrates being crafty as a snake and innocent as a dove in the face of persecution. And it comes from two years ago, New York Times, about this time, like December 21. Um, the article is called Arrest Beatings and Prayers Inside the Persecution of India's Christians. It details the persecution of, India, uh, of Christians in India, especially in 
certain areas of India. So the article states, in church after church, the very act of worship has become dangerous despite constitutional protection for freedom of religion. The end of the article focuses on a pastor, um, a pastor, Vinod Patil, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, he refused to stop witnessing for Jesus, but you're gonna see he learned to do it in a way that was crafty as a snake and innocent as a dove. So this is what the article writes. It says, he leaves his house quietly and never in a group. He jumps on his small Honda motorbike and putters past little towns and scratchy wheat fields, Bible tucked inside his jacket. He constantly checks his mirror to make sure he's not being tailed. Hindu extremists have warned Pastor Patel that they will kill him if they catch him preaching. So last year he shut down his Living Hope Pentecostal Church, which he said used to have 400 members and he shifted to small clandestine services, usually at night. And um, I, I could argue with the wording of that. He didn't shut down his church, he shifted. <laughs> All right. So one cold night, his past winter, this past winter, Pastor Patel drove to a secret prayer session in an unmarked farmhouse. He quickly stepped inside on the dusty carpet that smelled like sheep. Two dozen church members waited for him. Most were lower caste farmers. When a dog barked outside, one woman whipped around, whispered, what's that? Pastor Patel reassured the woman that God was watching over them. He cracked open his weathered Hindu language Bible and rested his finger on Luke 21, which is a parallel to Matthew 10, okay? An apt passage for his beleaguered, beleaguered, beleaguered flock. They will seize you, quoting, they will seize you and persecute you. He read, voice trembling. They will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Pastor Patel says, you get this energy just thinking about his name, Jesus' name. The journalist then brings the article to a close saying, these people, they really believe deeply in the teachings of Jesus. <laughs> Um, which, going back, is too oftentimes cannot be said of some of us, that we believe deeply in the teachings of Jesus. All right, so we'll continue next week. Let's move to our time of response. Um, part of our response uh, today is going to be communion coming forward for it. You can stay where you're at if you've got a packet. The communion that is up here is not gluten-free. We have gluten-free packets. Um, so keep that in mind. As you come, come to the center, please, and then work your way back around to come back in. Uh, otherwise, it, you'll, you'll see it, it won't work. All right, so I'm going to remind you what communion is about, pray, and then we'll, we'll move into our time of response. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
thank you that we are yours. We thank you that you have called us. We thank you that even when we go into danger, we have your assurances. We have your spirit. Your spirit, not just in times of danger, but in times, good times, helps us recall what we have learned about you through your word. I pray, Father, that we would be that we'd be living and leaning into that and trusting you in everything that we do. I pray for believers all around the world who even today are having to meet in secret uh, because of the persecution they would receive, not, not just from local authorities, but from their very family members. We pray that you would protect them, give them hope, give them strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.